This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day. Just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang app. Downloaded it, listened to it, real cool, you know. And the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get crook in the club. But what about the city of the day after tomorrow? Say the year 2000. I think it will be completely different. In fact, it may not even exist at all. Oh, I'm not thinking of the atom bomb and the next Stone Age. I'm thinking of the incredible breakthrough which has been made possible by developments in communications. On the mark, get set. We're riding on the internet. Cyberspace set free. Hello, virtual reality. Interactive appetite, searching for a website, a window to the world, got to get online. Take a spin, now you're in with the techno set, you're going surfing on... On a sunny Monday in June, May stopped in front of the main door standing below the logo etched into the glass above. Though the company was less than six years old, its name and logo, a circle surrounding a knitted grid with a small C in the centre, were already among the best known in the world. I hear all that. I'm going to go to a gentleman here who wants to make a comment, and then we're going to look at some technology, some pictures and video of technology. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, adding some substance to what he's talking about. I'm an uh, internet service provider here in Dallas, Texas. And well, wait a minute. For, before you say that, you, you've got to tell us before we look at this video, what is an internet? It's gone from something people were very skeptical about to something that's all pervasive and really integrated into our everyday lives. Your phone is getting smarter every time you touch it as you get dumber about it. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be acting on now? How do I increase my performance? As opposed to, well, what happens if I just sit here? We are psychological beings, study of mind and behavior. You can't escape that. And so when you sit in any space, 
that will affect your mind and your behaviour. So design of offices, management of offices, will impinge on your personality and the way you act one way or another. I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. Today, we're going to be showing our friends, Andrew and Lisa, the basics of the internet. And we thought you might want to come along. It'll be cool. It will be cool. Hello and welcome to Science Dish, the show that unpicks the science within a work of fiction. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. And that, weirdly, might be the only contribution that Michael makes <laughs> during this episode of Science Dish because we're going to be talking about The Circle by Dave Eggers. A couple of things to say about this. Firstly, Dave Eggers is probably my favourite author. I love The Circle, so if anyone says anything negative about it, I will kick off. Secondly, Michael hasn't read the book. Yes, he has. You haven't, though, have you? <laughs> yeah, I have, actually. I very much enjoyed it, Rick. Uh, anyway, I think you're going to be of limited use during, yeah, this, I'll accept during, that. during this show, uh, because it's kind of not your field of expertise. But we are joined by someone that we thought maybe be able to help out. Uh, web psychologist Natalina High is in the studio with us. Hello, Natalie. Hello, how are you doing? So the book, a sort of brief overview, is about a woman called May who gets a job at a company called The Circle. And The Circle is a... It's a tech company that I suppose is like an amalgamation, really, of Google and Facebook and, and YouTube. Um, it's like one of them is doing everything and becomes dominant. Their whole ethos is to get people ultimately to go transparent. And it paints a kind of dystopian vision of what that might be like. A little mark with the A and then the ring around it. At. See, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie said she thought it was about... Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard it. I'd never heard it said. I'd always seen the mark, but never heard it said. And then it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. Well, Allison should know. What What is internet anyway? Have you read the book, Natalie? I have read the book. I read it a couple of years ago and I was just stunned by how familiar, actually, all of it felt. Mm. And you start off thinking, okay, I get this. It sounds like an idea or ideas I could buy into. And then it gently just takes you closer to tiny little forks in a road mm. of the protagonist of May. And you kind of go, okay, what, what would I do in her shoes here? Would I choose to go this particular way? Would I be seduced by the technology, by the lifestyle? And I think what I found interesting was the number of times I said yes in my mind. And there comes a point later where you kind of go, oh, fuck. When you look at it from afar, you could say, okay, well, there's some Orwellian principles that are sort of fleshed out. But when you're going through it as a journey... It actually feels like something very familiar that we could all be seduced by. And I think that's the beauty of the book, that it does make you reflect and see that it's not a binary thing, this dystopian future that we could build, that it's something that's incrementally Mm. achieved. So we always ask three questions. I think we we need to start with how all-encompassing I think the internet is and how it affects all of us and how our online identities and our offline identities have a tendency to kind of seep into one another. So the first question is, who am I in the in the age of the internet and social media? And I, I guess this is about the curation of your own image, isn't it, Natalie? Yeah, I think the curation and validation of who you are. So it could be, I know that I want to be presented in a good light. I want to look 
thin in my pictures or I want to look powerful in my pictures or whatever. Or I want to be seen to be popular. So there's the curation of the image, but then there's also the validation of I am worthwhile and uh, my contribution is meaningful. And it's possible now to kind of measure quantitatively the curated image and the social approval that we get as a consequence of that image. So this ability to, to measure it is something that Professor John Suler, who is the father of cyber psychology from Rider University, has noticed. People put stuff out there and they want to see how people are reacting. And typically what they're looking at is how many followers do I have? How many likes do I have? It's almost like I'm performing a self and I want to see how much applause I get. And I think what sometimes happens is you get into a certain style that you're presenting. People like that style and you gain followers for it. And if you try to present something else, people don't like it. They don't give you a, a like or a fave or a plus or whatever it might be. And if they get that lack of response, in their mind, it's almost as if, well, people don't like this. This isn't important. Maybe it isn't really a valuable part of who I am or people don't really understand me online. They want me to be a certain way and I'm not allowed to explore other forms of expression. Are you reluctant to express yourself because you fear your opinions aren't valid? May had never thought about it quite this way, but it made a certain sense. Was she too shy about expressing herself? Denise narrowed her eyes. May, I'm no psychologist, but if I were, I might have a question about your sense of self-worth. We've studied some models for this kind of behaviour. Not to say this kind of attitude is antisocial, but it's certainly subsocial and certainly far from transparent. And we see that this behaviour sometimes stems from a low sense of self-worth, a point of view that says, oh, what I have to say isn't so important. Do you feel that describes your point of view? I think a big issue, and cyber psychologists are talking about this now, is the, the symbiotic relationship we have with our devices, which was raised to another whole level when uh, mobile phones became popular. Now you always have this ability to connect. So people always want to be in the loop. They always want to be online. They always want to be constantly reporting on what they're doing. Here's what I'm eating at this diner. Here I am at a concert. And it's again, it's that, that theme in the circle, the idea of going transparent. Here's like an ongoing report on what my life is like, and I need ongoing feedback from people about what they think about this. And that kind of symbiosis, there's some pros to that, but the, the cons are you don't have time away from it. You don't disconnect. You don't spend time in self-reflection alone with your devices turned off so you can think about yourself, reflect about yourself, figure out in your own mind who you are and who you want to be. There are two exciting things happening in software and in computing today. I think one is objects, but the other one is the web. The web is incredibly exciting because it is the, the fulfillment of a lot of our dreams that the computer would ultimately not be primarily a device for computation, but metamorphosize into a device for communication. And the, with the web, that's finally happening. 
So is the problem then that we're spending too much time totally intertwined and not enough time on our own, away from our phones, away from our kind of social media interactions and so on? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely a point to be made there. So there's some research that came out a couple of years ago that looked at the instances where we actually pull our phones out to, you know, satisfy ourselves, whatever. And it's usually when we're waiting for something or someone. So it's a sense of boredom, that space where we have the downtime, where normally without that constant promise of stimulation and rewards, we'd be contemplating stuff or being creative or being imaginative. And there's some really interesting research that's coming out specifically out of a lot of the tech sort of heavy universities that are finding that screen time does have untoward effects in terms of our abilities to think more deeply or to contemplate more deeply or even on the quality of interactions that we have with our friends. So I think the online and offline divide as it once was is no longer there. It's much more of a fuzzy symbiotic, well, I don't know, maybe I'd even go so far as to say parasitic. If we're unable to make choice as to our level of involvement, does that end up endangering us in terms of the kind of lives that we're leading? The other thing is that actually more and more, I notice that people, and I do it, are using phones during conversations in, oh, in person. So, so we would be sitting around this table having a chat and one of us quite possibly would have a phone out and, and occasionally check in with it. Yeah, yeah. That feels like a very new phenomenon. Like we don't give our undivided attention to a conversation. And we haven't worked and out the rules for it, have we? No, then nobody I, knows what's acceptable and what isn't. I, I read an article the other day about how American kids in high schools now sort of have vague kind of rules for themselves about how they how they interact during a conversation in person and with their their phones and they're saying that the level of conversation now is shallower because they don't want to give that much attention because something more interesting might be happening on on their phone the, the thing that i think about that is that we always sort of have these rose-tinted spectacles. So we look back and you imagine these high schoolers having these deep conversations. And I'm not sure that they ever were particularly. The busy so sort might... of rifling through dirty mags in yeah. the head. But at least you'd have something to talk about. And then you talk about it and then you go, oh my God, guess what I saw? As opposed to tweeting about it and things go viral. Yeah. And then you kind of end up with this weird lambasting of, you know, he said, she said. You work shit out in the playground. Yeah. You, we don't have that same facility to work things out in the playground and then let bygones be bygones. Like everything's recorded. Everything's kind of, it's a completely different territory. There's also the, this idea that you can kind of be, be ranked online. You can kind of gauge how you're doing, how the image that you're putting out there um, is stacking up against, against other people. And, and that's very explicitly drawn in, in the circle where you're just trying to, um, May is trying to rise up by getting a zings out and all that kind of stuff. Um, That's not a euphemism, by the way, <laughs> if you haven't read the book. <laughs> Which you haven't. So you have no idea if it's a euphemism. <laughs> and also these digital rankings can actually end up out in the real world. And we spoke to Professor Frank Pasquale. He's from the University of Maryland. There are so many of these digital rankings. It's, it's amazing. I mean, there are at least... 8,000 scores that are used by online firms to rank and rate individuals on everything from their frailty to their goodness or badness as an employee. They are they're scoring and ranking and rating of students. And this is not like the grades that they get on their exams that they know about. These are scores that come from predictive analytics firms when they come into the class at the beginning, students uh, who are rated red, yellow, or green. Then it's much better to be green than red. And all of these scores, you know, are framed as ways of ordering individuals' lives and tailoring uh, responses to them. For example, the professor who has a student who's a red student might 
try to reach out to them more or might try to tailor some lessons, particularly to someone who has not been succeeding in school. But on the other hand, they are worrisome because A, a lot of people don't know about them, and B, they may be treated differently by their surroundings because of these scores. May looked at the time. It was six o'clock. She had plenty of hours to improve there and then, so she embarked on a flurry of activity, sending four zings and 32 comments and 88 smiles. In an hour, her party rank rose to 7,288. Breaking 7,000 was more difficult. But by eight o'clock, after joining and posting in 11 discussion groups, sending another 12 zings, one of them rated in the top 5,000 globally for that hour, and signing up for 67 more feeds, she'd done it. These things will make possible a world in which we can be in instant contact with each other, wherever we may be, where we can contact our friends anywhere on Earth, even if we don't know their actual physical location. When you have this many scores out there, it creates a world where every moment becomes an opportunity to either maximize performance on some metric or to fail to and to be left behind. So, for example, when you are scored by a car insurance firm, this is becoming more popular in the U.S., suddenly, you know, it's not just trying to avoid accidents that, that you're trying to do, but the level of granular detail goes down to the level of if you hard brake too often, which is to decelerate the car, I believe, by 5 to 10 miles per hour in less than 7 seconds, that will be held against you on your insurance. And I think that this is a very troubling situation because uh, I'm all for insurance companies trying to make the automobile, the machine, safer. But, you know, as they try to reach further and further into individuals' behavior, you create a situation that's a bit like what's called in, in horses dressage, where people try to make these horses sort of dance through various uh, obstacle courses. <laughs> and, and I think this is a possibility of a dressage of the human beings by these predictive analytic systems. I would pay serious money to watch human dressage. That's going to be the next Olympic sport, isn't it? Don't you think? It'd be really good. Human dressage. Would you have uh, a little human riding the big human? Or would no, you I just think go just, pure? It would be much funnier if the human was just prancing on the floor. Is the human on all fours? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I mean, that would distinguish it from the kind of floor work in the gymnastics, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to muddy the waters. So. No. <laughs> I, I suspect um, that Frank wasn't talking about what we were talking about, um, but more this idea that we're all kind of competing uh, against one another in these various disciplines, but we're not quite sure what will get us good marks in those disciplines. It's the interesting thing, isn't it, is that you want to be kind of doing this online presence where you, and you do get this response from, you know, likes and favourites and things like that. And then you do start to modify your behaviour. But at the same time, you're really not sure what the end point is. What What is it you're trying to achieve? I deleted a, a tweet two days ago because it didn't get much of a response. Oh, you deleted it? How vain is that? Yeah, I know. And afterwards, I was like, why have I done that? And I said, well, <laughs> it's sort of polluting my nice feed, <laughs> my nice popular feed. Wow. Yeah. Okay, but I feel like... Insight into the mind of Rick yeah. Edwards right <laughs> Yeah, there. but that's worrying, isn't it? That is worrying. I'm I mean, I was, uh, I was aware, at least, <laughs> that that was not a, um, not a perfect thing to do. But I suspect that lots of people do that. I think I see it happen on, on Instagram a lot. So if people don't get a sufficient number of likes then they'll just get rid of it. And people talk about that as if it's a bad thing. 
Is it really a bad thing? I don't know. I think, I think as long as you're getting something from it and you know what it is that you want to get out of it, I think that's the key thing, right? It's like any tool. Oh, I don't know. what I, I don't know what I'm getting out of it and I don't know what I want to get out of it. I just so, have a Maybe that's sense. the problem. <laughs> yeah, so that is a problem. But then I suspect that's true of most people. So this is one of my problems with May in the book is that she's doing all this stuff, but she's not doing it for herself. I think it's kind of okay to do it for yourself. And, you know, all of us... I guess, work in the media and we want to maintain a certain kind of profile or whatever. And that's, so it's part of our brand. It's part of our business, if you like. But for her, you know, she's doing it for the company, effectively for the salary or for the prestige of being allowed to be part of that company. And that for me is a big problem. You know, that, that's where I look at her and I think, oh, don't do that. Well, it's also just mm. the trap of gamification, right? So the, the fact that in offline society, before we had the internet, we still competed with each other. You get the person who is the popular person and they'd get asked out on more dates or whatever. We've always quantified and jostled our positions of power to say, right, how powerful or popular am I? It's just that now we've got very specific, immediate feedback as to where we're stacking up versus other people. The danger kind of is, well, if that becomes the only way that you measure your own life satisfaction, if your locus of control becomes external and you go, well, I'll only be happy if I get 14,000 followers, whatever, then it's probably not going to make you very happy. And I think that question needs to come in. It's like, fine, what are you using for? Does it serve you in a way that you're actually having more out of your life? You're not on Facebook, are you? No, I sorry. came off three years ago because of the psychographic research they're doing without consent. And I just I was fed up and I thought this is just beginning of the slippery slope. And then I read the circle and then I was like, okay, I'm job done. I'm, I'm well off. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also, I've, you know, when you, when you look at the issues raised in the circle and you think about the kinds of people who lead the most interesting lives, arguably, often they're the ones that have the most private lives. The juicy stuff doesn't get aired. We don't we don't air the kind of interesting, exciting things that we're doing. We we air like a, a Photoshop version of what we think people want to see. Yeah, um, but I wonder if you took away Facebook from most people, from it's you know millions of users, if it, overnight you just said right, okay, that's closed now. We're not doing that anymore. You know what would people feel? They would kind of grieve. They would be bereft. They would be unbelievably angry. So it's been subsumed into our whole lives, hasn't it, effectively? You say that, but there was some research that came out that found that people who were um, taken off Facebook for a week ended up having sharp increase in mood and feelings of um, calmness in their engagement in their day-to-day life and sense of being able to feel connected with themselves and with other people. So I think, yes, you'd probably get an outcry of, oh my God, we were entitled this and you've taken yeah. away and how dare you? And then suddenly people going, oh, actually... Oh, that's better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and actually, when I stopped using it, my... Um, yeah, I felt like I had a lot more free time and space and I wasn't clogged up with people that I didn't care that much about, actually. I did 11 hours without my phone yesterday. Well done, you. <laughs> yeah, specifically as a, in, in advance of this. Oh, it's like uh, doing and research. I felt quite, yeah. Hell. yeah. How did you feel? I, f- I felt good. Yeah. Genuinely, I felt good. Right. Um, it was nice not to have that sort of constant playing, yeah, playing, playing on my mind. Did you have any and deep I read, thoughts? Uh, oh, God, no. But, you know, give it time. Uh, but I, I read some of a book. You know, I achieved some stuff. Oh, well done, Ruth. Thank you, thank you. As we look back 10 years from now, the web is going to be the defining social moment for computing. It's not just the, the tech that is affecting May. It's also her her environment. So the fact that she is consumed by working with this with, with this organization and for well for this organization, and they set it up in such a way that you can just sleep there, and then that will improve your ranking and and so on. That the the office has a very big part to play in her life. 
Are we seeing that kind of stuff in real life too, Natalie? Yeah, I mean, I spent um, a couple of years ago, I went out to San Francisco for a while and I went and visited a couple of different companies out there. So some of them were larger than others and all of them had carefully designed their environment to make sure that you can get all your needs there from like the sacred to the profane. So you've got the massage booths, you've got nurseries, you've got all the organic kale that you can shake a stick at. And at some of the smaller companies, you've got blacked out windows, you've got food on site, basically making it as easy as possible for you to lose track of time, get all your needs there. Precisely like casinos. And actually, that's a great example of environment design. You kind of go, you're going to be looked after. We're going to remove all distractions. You are a performing machine and you're going to do. All right, then. So question two, can office design be used as a tool of social control? And we spoke to Dr. Craig Knight, who is an expert in office psychology from the University of Exeter. And we started by asking Craig about the the common open plan office. Is it bad? No, open plan isn't necessarily bad at all. Open plan can be collegiate, it can be sociable, and it can be relatively inexpensive in terms of you know people into space. But it is the most easily abused space there is. If you want to over-supervise people, if you want to force people into teams, if you want to make people work to patterns that you're going to insist upon, then open plan is the way to go for that, and that's not good at all. You know, um, think, for example, of maybe the last time you phoned up to pay a credit card bill or your telephone subscription or anything like that, and you heard the words, this call may be monitored for training purposes. Why? Why do we monitor the people at the bottom of the food pile? When was the last time you phoned your bank manager, your accountant, maybe you, and heard this call may be monitored for training purposes? And I'll probably say the answer to that is never. Open plan offices are open to abusive surveillance. And it is abusive, you know? We don't trust the people. That's the only reason they monitor. We want this to be a workplace, sure. But it should also be a human place. And that means the fostering of community. That's one of our slogans, as you probably know. Community first. And you've seen the signs, they say humans work here. I insist on those. That's my pet issue. This isn't a sweatshop. We're a group of the best minds of our generation. Generations. And making sure this is a place where our humanity is respected, where our opinions are dignified, where our voices are heard. This is as important as any revenue, any stock price, any endeavour undertaken here. The best space is a space where you can realise something of your own identity. What you don't want is to have an identity imposed upon you. That is the worst kind of space. And to go a stage further for the benefit, if you let people choose their identities as a group, then what you find is you get stronger group identity people choose together. And because the company has trusted that group to make that decision, you then get an organisational identity that is congruent and not opposite with the group identity. So it all works virtuously. The Google space, the Red Bull space, the Microsoft space, how does that work? Um, It's better, but it isn't best. And you'll often find that Google turn around and hold themselves up as paragons of office design. Uh, They are not. What they're doing is they're providing a far more psychologically engaged space than the Lean or the Six Sigma or the Spartan type of environment where there is nothing to do except work. And that makes a massive difference. It really does. But it's not best. 
There's no identification of your own identity. You're working under an infantilized identity, if you like, that Google are imposing on you. And you join that because you like the Google tribe. You are a Googler, right? that kind of thing. And also, if you think about those spaces, what you tend to get is you get little trolleys you can whip up and down corridors on. You get football tables. You get fridges that have beer in so you can sit and watch the football. It's all a bit luddist. So who designs those things? Who imposes them? And we can always, in terms of productivity, and we measure this very closely, we can always beat a high expensive design space with a space that people have developed themselves. Is this loss of privacy psychologically damaging to us then? I think it can be if it removes all privacy and control from your environment, from the individual. So, for instance, there was a fantastic, albeit quite frightening concept that was put forward or designed as a building by Jeremy Bantham, who's a, who was an English architect. And it's this idea that you end up with potentially you could use this particular format for a prison where you have a tower that overlooks a space in which the prisoners uh, are, are milling around and you never know whether there's someone in that tower surveilling you or not. And this comes into this whole idea of the observer effect, the fact that if we believe that we're being watched or if we are actually being watched, we'll behave in a different way than if we are unsurveyed. And this is crucial in terms of the way in which we choose to live our lives. If we feel like we're constantly under surveillance, we're going to act in a way that we feel that we're expected to behave. And so that has absolutely implications on our psychological well-being. What I'm seeing in a lot of um, companies that, that are run by friends of mine is that you'll often end up with open plan as a general kind of office space. And then there will be pods where people, if they need to do work that entails intense focus or private meetings, they have that ability. And my sense is that that sort of hybrid solution is much better because then you've got the tools that fit the job and it mm. gives you that sense of choice again. And that it's, is most yeah. offices now as yeah. well, actually. Yeah. You see a sort of a mix of the two. But, I thought the interesting thing from going back to the book was that not the sort of space in which she worked, but the kind of headspace in which May had to work, where she was being, you know, it, it was being monitored. She was being surveilled. You know, when her scores dropped below 95%, you know, suddenly it was like something had to be done and somebody would step in. So having that kind of pressure on the back of your, you know, like somebody looking over your shoulder the whole time, that's incredibly difficult to work with, I think. Oh, stressful. Yeah. Does that school of thought that says... You know, when people complain about being observed or complain about having their, you know, people getting access to their to their private documents or whatever, if you've done nothing wrong, then you have you have nothing to hide and therefore it's it's fine. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it? If you think about it in this way, and, and if you look at it contextually throughout history and the patterns that emerge, you'll tend to find that the gross abuses of power, the biggest abuses of power have occurred when for some reason or other, there's been a benevolent or visionary dictator that steps in, requires transparency, acquires loads of data, gets twisted by their own power and then uses it for control. And I think that the classic case that I always think of when people say this uh, is when before the Nazis really kind of started exterminating the Jews, and I'm sorry to bring it back to this, but it's a really useful case, people were told to come in and register their phone numbers. And they were able also to say, OK, we've got your number and we know your religious identity. So you're Jewish and this is your number. That was a first one of the first ways of tagging people. And of course, at the time, it was entirely benign. And yet, when it came to rounding people up, straight away, people had an easy way of saying, 
this is a Jewish family. This is their number. We know their location. In we go. And it's done. And by that point, you've invaded the privacy to such an extent with two pieces of data that you cannot reverse that. And I think that's the crucial thing. When you draw that comparison, it makes me feel like I should be offline entirely because I'm giving up so much information about myself every day. But it's all about choice, right? So I think the key thing is... But am I making the wrong choice? Only you can answer that one. And this is the crucial well, thing, right? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I would, okay, in answer to that, I would say, okay, the first thing that you need in order to make that, that assessment for yourself is, do you know what you're giving up? You, most of us don't because the companies are very untransparent. Now, the tricky thing here is, is that if you're sharing something that you think is private on Facebook... All it needs to do as a platform is update its terms and conditions and then suddenly your privacy settings aren't as watertight as you thought and your information is publicly available. So all of those things that you shared, knowing, thinking to yourself that it was private, suddenly becomes accessible in a public domain. There's an interesting kind of restraint that you find. I mean, there's not a lot of cursing or swearing. There's not a lot of um, personal um, cuts. There's not a lot of... um, Put downs that one would expect to find. There's not, you know, the kind of liberation is mixed. It's it's interesting because one would think if you're anonymous, you do anything you want. But people have a, in a group, have their own sense of community and what we can do. The third and final question is around this idea of completing the circle. So in in the book, going fully transparent so that you are being monitored, twenty four seven everywhere you go, and then offered feedback by anyone who wants to, to give you feedback. Are there potential benefits to that? Yeah, I mean, I think to play devil's advocate, there are certain benefits. So for instance, one of the things that you see in research around trolling or about inflammatory behaviors is that people tend to be more abrasive when they are anonymous. So this idea of being disinhibited, so the disinhibition effect, if no one can see who I am and I can't see the reaction that I'm causing or the emotional uh, impact that I'm having on someone else is much easier for me to be rude to you or to troll you or to flame you, whatever it might be. So if if you're in a community and you're saying to people, all right, to be part of this community, you have to be completely transparent. We need your real name and we're going to use your real image. And we're doing that by verifying your Facebook and your LinkedIn account, for instance, which is what Airbnb does. You are increasing the security of the system because you're accountable. You're physically represented. Well, you're kind of represented in a more accurate way. Uh, and then you're stopping that sort of tendency to be able to hide behind strings of numbers or whatever it might be, or your avatar, you're held accountable. That given, question three is, should we complete the circle? And how close are we to doing that anyway? And we spoke to media theorist Professor Douglas Rushkoff from the City University of New York. Well, in some sense, we are all fully transparent already. I saw a performer on stage who's a uh, professional lie detector, you know, and he, uh, you know, he'll get 10 people from the audience up on the stage and, and he can tell, you know, he does these sort of magical things, but really what he's doing is reading the subtle cues and their gestures and where their eyes look. And um, the fact that he could do it, that, you know, that we all have these tells, that we're all revealing ourselves to one another constantly sort of made me think that we all know everything about one another already anyway and at least on a subconscious level and we kind of just pretend not to so sure now we can have technologies that can 
observe us and find out more things about us than we recognize in each other, you know, right off the bat. But the reality is that, you know, what we're calling transparency isn't really that at all. It's a big data approximation of our consumer profiles. You know, the information that you put about yourself on Facebook is not who you are. You know, it's what movies you like or what books you've read or what brands you like. It's the full spectrum of human expression narrowed down to building blocks that Unilever and Procter and Gamble will understand. In other words, it's the building blocks that determine what razor will you buy next. You know, the kinds of things that a marketer would want to know, but nothing about who you are as a person. So it's not transparency. It's a transparency of a certain very selective number of parameters and it's transparency only to the highest bidder. So it's not a matter of me being transparent to you or my friends. It's not that we're you know, increasing our level of social intimacy by sharing more about ourselves with one another. It's we're sharing things we don't even know about ourselves with companies that we may not have even heard of. And we end up living in a world where someone like Mark Zuckerberg can take our past and use that to calculate our most probable future and then advertise to us products from a future that we haven't even gotten to yet. The internet is the most democratic medium there's ever been. It's not just a few guys who own newspapers or network channels who get to decide what's on. Anyone can publish. You just buy simple software and you're out there. So I keep getting these woodworking adverts. <laughs> Do I, you? I once clicked on what something came up on Facebook or Twitter. I can't remember which, and it was like one of these things where you can build a bench that then like turns into a picnic bench, <laughs> and you can just like you know lever it over, and it's amazing. And I, I clicked on it. I thought, oh god, that, that's amazing really cool. isn't the right word. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was clever design. So now I get like seventeen a day like woodworking projects to do. Have you ever uh, done one? No, I'm just not. do one. <laughs> Stop fighting it. <laughs> so this is obviously going to be my future is going to sit doing woodwork no more books no more talks just you and a saw <laughs> this um targeted consumerism how how accurate is it like when you know when uh, douglas is there saying that facebook can kind of work out your most probable future how good is it now Let's imagine that you are buying a present for your sister and she's just had a baby and you're looking for nappies. And so you're talking about on Facebook with your sister and you'll maybe send her a couple of emails or maybe you've uh, searched for it on Amazon. Now, this is in your life an anomalous search that you're making. Yeah. You don't need the nappies yourself, I hope. Uh, you're not using it for anyone else. It's just for your sister for a one-off. And what's interesting, which is what Michael was trying to earlier, is that you can all you need to do is, is make a certain level of interest or interaction in a particular item and then you start getting bombarded. So I think we're not at the stage where algorithms are able to actually detect these anomalous searches. The thing that worries me is about the sort of level of transparency being unequal. So as we get more transparent, these companies that are harvesting our information are getting no more transparent. Is there anything that we can we can do about that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends on how extreme you want to get. If you don't mind all of your data being given away, whatever, then fine, use whatever you want. If you're at the other extreme, and I know that some people who are, 
then don't use any massive social platforms. And actually, you're seeing this in younger people. I think mostly for the reason that no kid wants to be on the same platform as their parents. But for instance, with Facebook, you're getting an aging demographic, by which I mean people who are in their 30s and upwards, as opposed to young people coming in. And they're using more encrypted services and more fragmented services to be able to interact with each other. So things like Snapchat or Telegram or Wicca, any number of these platforms that kids are going to because they don't want to be able to get hacked. They know how easy it is to hack other people. And so it's very easy for us to get panicked by all of this stuff. And the potential for bad is absolutely there. And it's so important that we spell it out. But at the same time, if we spell it out, we kind of go, okay, we definitely don't want that to happen. How do we rein stuff in and then make the choices that we need? And so I think depending on your level of paranoia or your level of wanting privacy, you can make choices increasingly easily as to how you want to interact online. I think it's really interesting from a sort of evolutionary psychology point of view now. We've always lived in in big groups as human beings. We've always actually been transparent pretty much. You know, you live in a village. Everyone knew everyone else's business. You know, there was no hiding or not hiding very much. You always knew that, you know, whatever you did, somebody would know about it. And we're, for the first time in history, really having to deal with people not knowing stuff about other people and still having to live alongside them. And, and, And so, you know, our psychology hasn't really evolved to cope with any of this, has it? So, so we're in a position now where we're trying to work out who's benign, who's on our side, who's dangerous. And actually, you know, this is a transition period, I would say. And maybe in 100 years time, you know, we'll come out the other side and say, well, that was a lot of fuss, but actually we've survived it. Yeah. And I think when you look at the ways in which different technological advances have completely disrupted culture, society, religious belief, etc., with the mechanization of things. So for instance, the Industrial Revolution and the way that people kind of were very worried about losing jobs, about everything becoming mechanized and how that adjusted for itself. But actually, we have a way of figuring this shit out. And I think we will. It's just a question of figuring what the worst could be, deciding what we want, and then taking a stab at it, really. It is going to radically change the way goods and services are discovered, sold, and delivered, not only in this country, but eventually in the world. And as you know, electrons travel at the speed of light, and so it tends to bring the world much closer together in terms of providers and customers. That's very exciting. The leveling of big and small, the leveling of close, near and distant. Most young people in particular accept these media and applications at face value. So they'll look at something like Facebook and say, oh, the purpose of Facebook is to help me make friends. You know, but, you know, you and I know that they're not talking in the, in, the, in the boardroom at Facebook. They're not sitting there thinking, how are we going to help little Johnny make better and more enduring friendships? They're thinking, how are we going to monetize Johnny's data? How are we going to make money off what we know about Johnny's friends? Is there a bubblegum company that cares about who Johnny influences with his purchasing choices? Where does Johnny decide to buy his sneakers? How did he pick what brand of sneakers? Who does he listen to? Can we get that musician to wear sneakers so that Johnny will then copy that musician and wear those sneakers? Right. So the platforms themselves are really just looking at how to play us. You know, when you look at your phone, you're not looking anymore at a device that's there to help you realize your potential. You're looking at a device that is there to help the stock exchange go up, to help these companies grow by any means necessary. You know, we're not using digital technology in a way that's even consonant with digital technology. 
The problem is when we're using these extremely powerful tools to do it, you end up with a kind of extractive capitalism on steroids. You know, I mean, the performance of the stock has obviously been disappointing, right? And, and we care about our shareholders. And the commitment that we made is that we're going to execute this mission of making the world more open and connected. And we're going to do the things that we think are going to build value um, over the long term. Dominant companies have a responsibility not to abuse their powerful market position by restricting competition, either in the market where they are dominant or in neighboring markets. According to Bloomberg, they avoided nearly $2 billion in worldwide income taxes in just the year 2011. They shifted about $9.8 billion in revenues into a Bermuda shell company. Now, really, is Google doing a great majority of their business in Bermuda? Who believes that? Analysts have suggested the share offering could raise $10 billion, which would make it one of the biggest stock market launches in U.S. history. Digital literacy is knowing what the tool you are using is for. Now, most of us are using apps and using websites and using platforms that we don't know what they're actually for. So if a person's using Uber, he might think, oh, Uber is here to give me a part-time job or Uber's here to help me get a taxi. Now, that's not what Uber's here for. Uber is here to replace the logistics of the the real world with algorithms and robots. You know, the drivers are just doing research and development for a company that really doesn't care about taxis at all. You know, digital literacy really starts by people just understanding who is actually the customer of this application. Who is the actual customer of this platform? If you're not the one paying for it, then chances are you're not the customer. Then you're not really the user. You're the one being used by the platform. I'm actually quite a fan of Uber. I mean, I think that the thing that I find problematic about a lot of these systems is the tracing of everything that we're doing. So for instance, with Uber, there was, um, I can't remember when it was, it was last year sometime, the fact that you could hack into it and trace where people were going to and from work. So for instance, journalists or people who are vulnerable who need protecting. So I think that's kind of the element of these new exciting systems that are problematic for me. So if there was a way to sort of get rid of that or to at least encrypt that kind of information that could probably solve it. But of course, the Uber, part of the joy of it is that you can track where you're going and you know how long it's going to take. I certainly feel safer because I know exactly who the person is, what the number plate is. I can send that to whoever's waiting for me at the other end. It's about figuring out what the relationship is that you're entering into and then whether that's valuable enough on all sides for it to be useful. That's the heart of digital literacy, really, isn't it? Yeah. Just understanding what the transaction is. So what's the tool? How's it being used? Do I get enough value for this? Is this exchange fair? And that's Mm. it. And that's going to look different for everyone. I was wondering, you know, whether people had the same kinds of discussions at the invention of the printing press or mm. you know, other technologies. It's just a tool, isn't it, effectively? All of this, you know, we're describing various tools that are coming onto the market. And, you know, they have positives and they have negatives. And we're sort of tearing our hair out and wondering what the right thing is to do. 
maybe we just have to live through it. This is the first time that we've had a tool that is so all-encompassing. So it's not just a printing press. Mm -hmm. It's not just the radio. It's not just the TV. It's not just the ability to survey and do large-scale surveillance or, or collection of data. It's all of these things combined, instantaneous, immediately, and much of it without our awareness. And I think we've never encountered something that is so 360, so pervasive and so seductive. And I think it's an extraordinary tool, potentially, but then also the risks it poses are also huge. Okay, let's, um, let's have a look at our three questions then. So question one was, who am I in the age of the internet and social media? And I guess we're saying there's a sort of, there's a duality, but also the the two are seeping and, and bleeding into one another. So it's quite, it's just quite grey, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, whoever you're... I choose to be, and I'm, I'm one person on one platform, I'm a different person on another platform, and I'm quite happy with that, you know. I, so, you know, we, we're getting to choose who we are. Would you agree with that, Natalie? We're getting to choose <laughs> who we are? Mm, I think if we can figure out ways to kind of use tech in a way that makes us feel good, which I think we're starting to do anyway, and just balance the bad stuff out, then yeah, absolutely. Mm. It can really help us express ourselves and mm. connect with ourselves in richer ways. Good. Question two was, can office design uh, be used as a tool for social control? Yes. Just yes. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Question three was, should we complete the circle and how close are we? Hell no, and not that close. Thank fuck. <laughs> Strong definitive answer there. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy with that. Folks, we're at the dawn of the Second Enlightenment. And I'm not talking about a new building on campus. I'm talking about an era where we don't allow the majority of human thought and action and achievement to escape as if from a leaky bucket. He turned again towards the screen and read it, inviting the audience to commit it to memory. All that happens must be known. May leaned towards Annie. This is incredible. The audience was standing now. The applause thundered through the room. May rested her head on Annie's shoulder. All that happens will be known. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. We were joined in the studio this week by Natalie Nahai. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. The researcher was Cormac McAuliffe. This episode featured Professor John Sula, Professor Frank Pasquale, Dr. Craig Knight, and Professor Douglas Rushkoff. The executive producers were Ellie DiMartino and Harry Watson. And that is how you read. You guys are so brutal to each other. Oh my God. We sort of love each other. Sort of. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our best ever Sky Black Friday offer is here. Get Sky Q with the TV you love all in one place. An ultra fast Sky broadband for our best Wi Fi all around your home. Plus, you can choose from Sky Sports or Sky Cinema. All for just €55 a month for 12 months. Don't miss Sky's best ever Black Friday offer. Just search Sky Black Friday. New customers only. Availability subject to location. Minimum term and further terms apply. For more info, see sky.ie slash speeds. Offer ends November 30th.